Welcome aboard on Consider Everything. I'm your host, Brig Haynes, and let's go explore today to improve our mental health tomorrow. Who here listening to the podcast has ever heard the phrase, mental illness just runs in the, in the family, or mental illness is something you're just going to have to cope with for the rest of your life? I have, and to be honest, it kind of takes a lot of hope out of me. It, it doesn't feel that great to know that, you know, your life is just going to suck, and that's okay, you know? It, you know, it's just going to suck. I don't really want my life to suck, and that's what we're going to be discovering today is, is mental illness something that you're going to have to deal with for the rest of your life, or is it is that based on science? Is it based on things that have been tested over and over and over throughout the years of this earth, or is it just something that people have just come up with? That's what we're going to be looking into today, but before we do that, I thought we'd first start out with getting to know our guests as well as getting to know our questions that we're going to be asking our guests for next week. And for those of you that haven't listened to this podcast, during the research episode, we do specifically that, where we get to know our guests as well as get to know the questions. And the reason why we do that is because we want to go into this interview episode knowing a little bit and have a basic understanding so that way we can get something both you and I out of this interview. So now we're going to get to knowing our guests. And our guest is actually my uncle, Dr. Jeff Anderson. And unlike the, you know, with genetics, I would say the happy leprechaun that carries all the smart genes to all those lucky babies out there, uh, he definitely, I think he missed my room when I was born because I unfortunately did not have that. But he did definitely did not miss Jeff Anderson's. That leprechaun luckily was able to give that gift to my uncle, Jeff Anderson. He's a super smart guy. And I'm really excited to hear what he has to say because... I don't know much about this, and he knows a lot. He's been doing this for a lot of years. So he's actually a neuroradiologist at the Oregon Imaging. And what he does is he, you know, he does brain scans. He does a lot of research within the brain. And he studied abstract mathematics and neuroscience at Northwestern University before completing residency and fellowship in neuroradiology at the University of Utah. For those of you that don't know, actually... University of Utah is really well known for their medical field and the, and the achievements they've made there and the advancements they've made. So they're, they're very well known throughout the United States and even the world for uh, the, the productions that they make in the medical field at University of Utah. And until joining Radiology Associates, he was a tenured professor of radiology and bioengineering at the University of Utah, where he is an attending neuroradiologist. He was a director of the functional training, functional neuroimaging, and principal investigator of the Brain Network and Laboratory. He is an author of more than 100 peer-reviewed journal articles investigating the network organization of the brain and neurological and neurodevelopmental disorders, the neuroscience of religion and meditation, and the neuroscience of personality, including publications in Science, Nature Neuroscience, Neuron, and Proceedings of the Na- National Academy of Sciences. Whew! Those were a lot of words that I had no idea what they meant, but and that's not true. I know, I know what it's trying to say here, but super well-known guy, especially in the field. He's done over a hundred peer-reviewed journal articles, so he's done a lot of research on his own, and I've actually gotten to know some of those publications, and they're really interesting. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to leave some of those publications within the description of this episode. So if you guys want to learn more about what he studies specifically, I'll definitely leave those there. I'll give a little bit of an introduction to one one of them that I learned about. So I was pretty young when he talked about this, but what I could learn about it was he was actually studying, you know, when people say they have a, you know, the spirit come over them or they're, they are just feeling a, an overwhelming immense feeling of joy. What he's actually, what he was actually trying to study during one of these publications is what are they actually, what's going on in the brain when they're saying these things when they say oh i'm having a 
uh, you know, a euphoric state, perhaps, or I'm feeling the spirit strongly right now. He's trying to figure out what what do they mean by that? What's going on in the brain? Is it something that can't be detected on the brain when they say that? Or is there something that actually is being detected through brain scans? So like I said, I'll leave some of those within the description of the episode. You guys can go check out what he studied. But yeah, he's a super smart guy. He's been doing this for years now, and he's been studying the brain for quite a few years. He's read a lot, and he's studied a lot and researched a lot. So I'm really excited to see what he's going to have to say about this. And now we're going to kind of go into getting to know our questions specifically. Like I was saying before, we want to make sure we're going into this, knowing the questions and knowing and being prepared. Failure to plan is to plan to fail. So let's get in here. Let's plan a little bit, make sure that we don't fail. And the first question we're going to be asking him is, how often would you say people believe they have a mental illness when really they are just experiencing natural ups and downs that come with life? When most people think of mental illness, they think of a lifelong illness that they will have to deal with. But if people keep telling themselves this and they feel like they can't ever control this, doesn't that mean that they are going to have to believe throughout their whole life that they can't control themselves without the help of others or the help of medication? With lifelong illnesses like bipolar and schizophrenia, are there noticeable differences in the brain for people that have these illnesses? Do genes play the biggest role in determining whether or not someone is going to have a mental illness? Are we at the point where we can do a genetic test on someone and tell if they are going to have a mental illness or not? Can environmental and behavioral changes in someone's everyday life start to change their genetics, thus improving or eradicating it? Many people want to know that there is a solution to their problem. With physical health, for most things, it can be pretty easily to detect visually what is going on with somebody. But with mental health, however, it seems like you are mostly going off of what a person is telling you. Can this make it hard to tell if somebody is just lying to you to get a magical pill to fix their problems? What are the differences between cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and cognitive dynamic therapy? Would you say the accessibility to mental health medications is more than what it should be? If yes or no, why or why not? Do most people get prescribed medication through a family physician before seek, seeking a psychiatrist to evaluate what is, whether medication is necessary or not? If yes, should this remain the same or would you say people should be evaluated whether or not it is necessary from a psychiatrist before receiving medication? Studies show that the amount of people being diagnosed with a mental illness has risen dramatically since the, the creation of the internet. Would you say that, that, that technology is causing, a is causing a lot of mental illness? Do you think that many people who take medication for a mental illness are really just spending money on a placebo effect? What makes some medications for mental health addictive? What properties do they have that make it addictive for a lot of people? Are psychiatrists able to tell if somebody is struggling with a mental illness without going off the word of what the patient is saying, through visual cues, through behavioral uh, cues, etc.? Is there a reason for why some people have genes that make them more susceptible to a mental illness? Do you think the public should first seek therapy and help that doesn't involve medication before seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist? If so, would you say the public is in the know about this or should it be advertised more? Is the invention of the internet and social media and the ability for anybody to express their opinions on topics that they don't really know about a detriment to those seeking help to improve their current mental health status? So now we're going to move more into the research side of things. This is just some of the research I've done. And I just want to kind of get you and I familiar with what the world has to say and what the medical, the medical community has to say about this. So can genes determine your susceptibility for a mental illness? According to the National Institute of Mental Health, it is difficult to determine if somebody is more susceptible for a mental illness or not according to their genetics. 
They are not able to look at somebody's genes and determine that they are most likely going to have a mental illness or not. The most reliable way to determine somebody's susceptibility of a mental illness is their family history. But again, that's hit or miss, according to the medical community. So could there be other factors that make people more susceptible to a mental illness that have no relation to genetics or family history? The Smithsonian Magazine says that the idea of genetics being set in stone is starting to fade away in the medical community. They are now beginning to see that different environments and childhoods can actually change their genetics. So could this mean that our environment and trauma in our life are the main contributing factors to the development of a mental illness? Studies are now finding that the biggest link between susceptibility and mental illness is, a ch is childhood trauma, neglect, or abuse. According to a study done by Dr. Angela Brown and Dr. David Finklor, the longest lasting effect of those that were sexually abused is depression and anxiety. Studies are also finding out that those that have not learned how to manage their time wisely and have to, and to have an everyday plan are at a much higher susceptibility to developing a mental illness. According to mcleanhospital.org, poor time management and fail failure to plan can start to be expressed in feelings like depression, anxiety, sleep issues, and other symptoms associated to mental illness. So how much can we blame our genetics and family history for our current state of mental health? I would say if you, we really want to find the root of what has caused our mental illness, I think we got to look at our history of childhood trauma, i.e. abuse, neglect, ch childhood bullying, and also the current status of our ability to plan and have goals within our life. But that being said, for our if our genes have the ability to change due to our environments and childhood trauma, could this mean our changed genes could be passed down to the next generation and so on? And could this snowball? Can a bad track record of childhood trauma and abuse within a certain family start to make undesirable changes within their genetics? And could this be re reversed within a family that does have bad genetics for mental illness? That's a question we're going to have to ask Jeff Anderson. There was an experiment done on a group of students where a presenter showed an image of two circles that were equal in size, but there was a difference. One was blue and one was red. But the key here is that he didn't mention that they were equal in his presentation. He asked them, which circle out of these two circles is the smallest? The students pointed to the red circle and said, that one. The professor looked around with a smile on his face and said, well, actually these two circles are equal. The students all looked around confused and dazed and they took a closer look. It was a trap! The two circles were equal. But why did the students think this? Well, because they were listening to somebody with more knowledge and education. They automatically assumed that what they were being told was true. Can mental illness be similar to this experiment? If we think that we have no control over our mind, and our mind knows more than us, can our mind trick us into believing things that are not true, just like the experiment done on these group of students? Speaking of illusions, is it possible for somebody to believe they have a mental illness even if they really don't? And can somebody who denies having a mental illness really be in distress and in reality they are trying to compensate for their insecurity? We're going to go back to the Captain America days, okay? Specifically 1956. A study done in 1956 on a large group of soldiers evaluated the mental health status of each. And what they found was that the ones that appeared the most healthy were actually the ones most likely to break down during combat. Another study done on almost 40, year, almost 40 years later led by Dr. Jonathan Shelder and his colleagues also showed this, exam, this same exact thing. Their studies prove that oftentimes those that appear healthy on a mental health scale are oftentimes found to be more healthy according to self-analysis tests, but to cl clinicians and in reality they are in, in need of a lot of help. One flaw about this study that I found was that they didn't evaluate whether or not somebody who claims they are struggling with mental, health, mental illness 
are not really struggling but are just trying to avoid the challenges that come with life. According to a study done at St. Louis University, people that are around stress or observe stress or observe somebody in stress also feel stress and anxiety themselves. It is contagious. So, could this also be a reason for somebody to believe they have a mental illness when in reality they are just surrounding, they are just surrounding themselves with stressful people and in situations that are unnecessary? Tune in next week to hear more about what Dr. Jeff Anderson has to say about these questions. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys, and join me next Sunday for a new episode. One.